You're listening to Gone Clear. This is um, an episode dedicated to thinking about internet art, thinking about art and the internet. Um, I'm joined by my guest, Emily Simpson. Hello. Who is uh, an artist who uses the internet, as do I. Um, Emily ha- is sort of curated shows uh, recently for Is This It and um, works in a mixture of URL and IRL, yep. as, as the phrase goes. Um, we had a conversation a couple of months ago uh, about sort of whether the format of the of the internet um, is is settling down. Uh, we had this conversation online. Online, we did have this. Yeah, well, we were in different different countries, um, uh, but yeah, we we had this conversation about whether whether the sort of whether internet art as a sort of format is is still kind of whether that art is really about the internet still or whether it's just quite normal for, for the internet to, to be a place where this stuff takes place and that the ideas that we're talking about are generally just just ideas and that the internet, like like the like the printing press, is just a sort of form more than anything. Uh, or are we still being confronted with quite massive um, shifts in the way that we communicate that we're still kind of grappling with? Perhaps a mixture of the two. Um, what are your thoughts? I think there's a mixture of the two, really, because there's lots of themes obviously that artists are starting to deal with which are less they come through the kind of filter of the internet just because Mm -hmm. that's what we're used to dealing with now um so stuff like you deal with to do with the emotional labor it's not directly rooted Mm -hmm. to the online space but it takes that kind of format because that's how we communicate now but really the baseline is just to do with communication Mm -hmm. and um but I guess it depends whether you, how you position your view on the IRL and URL split. Mm. Um, because I think for our generation it's, and younger generations, it's becoming less like there is a split and it's more just um, the two can completely coexist, bleed into each other. And we're not really too... We're interested in how they bleed because it's fascinating, but we're, we're not worried about that leading mm-hmm. between the two so in that sense there's do you think it becomes more self-conscious for us yeah. because we're, we're this is more of a novelty yeah the question is in 10 or, or 15 years time how many novelties will there be in terms of new media how new will any of the media be is there going to be a sort of they won't be new because facebook to me seems like we were talking earlier about about archiving and um uh, people who um, younger people who use Instagram as a much more transient medium, so they delete a lot of their posts, and then a lot of the way they communicate is through stories, which, which like Snapchat, uh, which was the pioneer of this, deletes itself. It's actually quite smart when you're thinking about um, the stuff that's going to come back and to haunt you and the way. Yeah, I, which we've got a lot of. Yeah, our generation. I, you know, I don't um, find a penny for the amount of uh, times people complain about not being able to delete their Facebook or it being very laborious to kind of go through everything. Or knowing that your MySpace exists. Or no, yeah, which is weird because MySpace kind of became a different site, but those, those little stuff cached. Um, yeah, because they've, <coughs> they've deleted all the content from MySpace, but I logged into my account recently um, out of interest and 
they've deleted all the comments and the messages, which is the interesting stuff that I want to start using for my work. <laughs> and they've kept all Damn. the photographs, oh, right. which That's are weird. the awful, embarrassing things that I want off the internet. Okay. And were you able to remove them? Um, I can do, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, um, I mean, I remember that with Bebo. It's a weird, it's a sort of weird teenage thing. It's like a band that you're sort of into and you just, you, you can't think of liking anything else and then suddenly, suddenly you're not interested mm. at all. Actually, it was a bit of a tandem, but um, ages ago, I, again, I was fil- trying to filter through my Facebook mm-hmm. um, to kind of curate it a bit more. Um, and I did laboriously, because I didn't have, I had a lot of free time. Um, I scrolled right to the bottom of my Facebook posts and my first ever Facebook post was me saying, oh my God, what is Facebook? MySpace is so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I think my first tweet was something about, about how I felt there was some, that it was a kind of um, illusion of knowing famous people. And I was sort of, I, I sort of, because at the time when you joined Twitter, it was like, oh, I'm on this thing that Stephen Fry's on. And that was a weird sort of... I've never had Twitter. Mm. The, the thing, this brings us on to another thing I was, was interested in exploring, which is um, a thing that Edward Snowden said in the, the documentary Citizen Four, it's a great documentary, uh, where he says, he's asked why you're giving so much of your, of your life to, and, and sacrificing so much for, for, the, for internet freedom. Um, and he says that it's about, uh, he, he remembers, he has a sort of, not just a nostalgia, but a passion for a time when the internet was a, a a place of equality, a place where people with huge um, academic qualifications could debate freely with with young teenagers, young kids, just kind of finding stuff out for themselves. And and he says that with incre- increasing surveillance, securitization, uh, and a sort of hierarchies being created, governments finding out about the internet and finding out ways to use them, ways to manipulate things using them, that then suddenly the democracy was kind of gone from the internet. Um, do you feel like the internet's become like less democratic as you've used it? Um, I think on a personal term, yeah. But then on an artistic level, I think there's still some sort of sense of regaining that power or not completely overthrowing the hierarchy because obviously um, we create our own hierarchies now within social media but there's still some sort of sense of freedom that you don't have to wait for a gallery. You can mm. kind of create your own gallery or you can promote your own content or act like you're busier than you are, um, <laughs> which is all very liberating. Um, but yeah, I think, but then that, again, that's just artists using it in um, the way that artists have always used, used everything to try and... Um, I don't like run ahead of the game slightly. Mm -hmm. So in terms of just using, yeah, using the online space as a person rather than as an artist, I think the hierarchy still exists. Well, do exist, yeah, or are more prominent. There was something you said before we started recording about um, what if Twitter and Instagram hid the numbers? Yeah, this is something my um, one of my housemates was saying yesterday. Um, she suggested, "What if Facebook didn't have uh, enable you to see the likes?" Um, 
So you'd just be able to comment, message people, but then you wouldn't be kind of pitting against each other all the time. It wouldn't be about creating an ego and craving the likes. You'd just be literally just communicating, talking to each other. And we wouldn't have to feel like we'd create some sort of superstar status for ourselves or get worried about how we got two likes on a really good post. Or would that also function on a level of like you wouldn't be able to know which of your friends or connections were were liking something because there's an increase with yeah. Instagram it's moved a lot towards you know Emily Simpson and Ralph Pritchard and 32 others have liked this thing yeah um, whereas before it was kind of a bit more anonymous and I sort of like I sort of preferred that in a way it'd be nice if you yeah if only you could see it so someone could yeah, maybe if someone could like your like if your only post, you could see only what? you'd get the notification <laughs> oh, saying right, yeah, oh, yeah. this person liked it, but then the public couldn't see who liked yeah, it. Yeah, because it feels more intimate rather than performative. I've, yeah, yeah. I mean, with I remember I've had you know in in sort of uh, my experience of, of people being around activists, people organising protests and stuff. Sometimes, sometimes, I mean, it's broadly broadly the case now that you would just have the event, the guests. The, the going and interested in, in public because it's kind of obvious that that, that encourages more people to go but there were I've, there was a time when people would be like oh maybe we should make the the going list private so that there's this kind of um people don't um so for privacy i suppose or so that people don't um feel kind of watched um but i think that's sort of the way that technology creates social change it's always about utilizing that transparency i think but also like i mean i suppose most sort of historians on how technology has changed social movements like back channeling the ability to kind of contact people privately um definitely sort of any kind of organizational level uh a lot of a lot of personal politics yeah often kind of goes down on sort of privately messaging people just checking up on people in this sort of that's something that technology accelerates the possibility to um create those connections it's interesting how internet art started out quite utopian again like we're saying a liberating idea of you can engage with your peers on this level platform without having to go through the curators or go through the gallery space um but then obviously more recently like with the show in Whitechapel last year. Oh yeah, like Inf- information superhighway. Super, yeah, was it called electronic that? superhighway? Electronic yeah. superhighway. Yeah. So it's like the the yeah the gallery space is trying to find ways to put mm. commodify that and put the internet into. Do you feel that was like a violent setting? process of commodification? Because they wouldn't. They would just say this is our our review of 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 this kind of phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't think that. I wasn't sort of wild, wildly keen on that show, although there were good things in it. Um, I thought the curatorial approach was, like, really broad. Um, but do you feel that, do you feel like it devalues the work to sort of take it in, into a space like that? Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't devalue it necessarily, but it just changes the conversation that, that we're having about it. Um, in what way? The idea of it being... If the internet did was started out as a utopia, mm-hmm. 
it's it's no longer utopia if it's in a big institutional space like that because it's just fitting into the hierarchies that we've already had but then it doesn't necessarily devalue the work because the work is still valid and mm-hmm. still talking about devaluing that hierarchical system but it's kind of strangely situated within the hierarchical system but I don't think it's completely broken it as well because I don't know I think that was a bit of a flash in the pan expression as well for an institution like that to put on a mm. show like that well they felt that was a moment where it was it was appropriate to sort of create a history create, and, yeah. and that's making that work perhaps accessible to I mean there will have been people who who didn't really use use the internet to look at artwork um, who would have gone to that and felt that they'd gained some sort of impression of that work and for the people who were featured in it that that's some form of exposure but to me I mean my people when people talk to me about my work uh, which they have done a little bit in the last week because I had an online show on on is this it um, it's like people very much say like yeah that's that's a, like the like the internet is the perfect place for that yeah and yet part of me is kind of like hmm if I was offered a gallery show uh, I'd, I'd like that and I like yeah. have once or twice had things shown in galleries but they've always been very internet-y things yeah um, something that I've and then you go and you show well. it yeah yeah because like a lot of the stuff I make is really quick and really immediate like gifs or mm. just kind of one image Instagram post ready like Instagram ready kind of things mm. um and you, but yeah, I still want to show them in physical places, but they kind of, because I've made them for an immediate environment, yeah. which is sustainable there, like to spend a couple of seconds looking at a GIF on the internet is like the shelf life of the work and it's completely perfect. It's a yeah. fulfilled piece of work. But then there's a strangeness when you take it into a gallery space because you're expected to spend a tiny bit more time with the work and it... Once, once, yeah, once it becomes permanent, it's just, it's not like it's, it's, yeah, it's become a different thing. I don't know if it's better or worse. I think it get, I think internet art in galleries can get a bit fetishized because of the oddness of encountering an internet object in a, in a, in an IRL space. And I think if you can possibly curate something in a, in a space that is best suited to it, then you... Then, then you should. And actually, I would say in this day and age, there are fewer and fewer things that I think work in galleries. Mm. You know, like the stuff that works the, the best, in my opinion, tends to be stuff that's been made a long time ago. And I've got friends who don't really do internet art that much. They do sort of sculptures or whatever, but still the, their relationship to capital, their relationship to, you know, I don't really know people who sell stuff. And I know people yeah. mostly who actually resist the sales process and, and you know, I hear people say, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, I, even when people meet sort of rich people who could buy their stuff, they're sort of like, oh, God, you're a bit unpleasant and actually, you know, <laughs> the enemy. <laughs> you know, there's a sort of, for people our generation, I think, like, there's a sort of, there's a people in there who are in their early 30s now who were kind of, I guess, part of maybe the student movement in 2010 who who are now kind of making art careers, if they're making successful art careers, then they're selling stuff. If we're having successful art careers, 
we're not selling stuff. Yeah, we're getting exposure. <laughs> we're getting exposure, right? So it's this kind of casualization where it's like, well, you should be... It's like, on the one hand, it's like, oh, yeah, well, you should be grateful to even have exposure. But on the other hand, it's like, we actually don't really know how to sell our stuff. Yeah. Like a GIF or like a, a video like I made, like, you know, it's like, how, like or a website. How do I... Yeah. It, it, if selling it means it's available to fewer people, then I'm, I'm just shooting myself in the foot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also like, I don't think anything's that precious, including my own work, <laughs> so <laughs> why make it exclusive? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, but I mean, do, do, you, know, do you know people who've had conversations with, because I mean, there is, like, in video art, there's a bit of a culture of creating editions of files and stuff. I, I mean, that, to me, that just seems like, like some weird kind of like fucked up role play like it just doesn't sort of you know like like to actually go through with that for real to sell like a, a kind of a, a numbered copy of a mob file just seems to me sort of obscene but I mean what like have you witnessed this occur have you witnessed like internet art more broadly being sold being kind of no never if anyone's selling it they're keeping it very quiet because <laughs> well it's the set of set up the online shop recently. Pick up is this it? But I think the works range, I think some of them are going for like a quid or something like mm. that, which is a nice cheek way of referencing the fact that we're making no money from it. Mm. That's kind of, is that more like a sort of Patreon thing? Like more of a sort of... Yeah, I think so. For the sort of actual collectors? Because there are people, you know, there are people, I mean, there are some sort of, like, there are a few sort of rad commercial, I mean, I suppose... I struggle to name uh, Arcadia Missa, I suppose, Cube, and older ones like Cubic Gallery and stuff. There are sort of institutions that represent and, and exhibit work by kind of, you know, not the establishment. Uh, but when I look around my peers, people who are in their early 20s making art, um, yeah, I genuinely like, uh, we're totally like, re- re- like, we might we might get paid for commissions, but we won't. Yeah. Like, I think residencies and commissions are yeah. the, the only way we can think of doing an income or getting arts council funding or something to do research. Which, to be honest, I think is more interesting. Yeah, it makes more interesting work, but the resources are sort of, with arts council funding disappearing. It's oh yeah. It's like it's more scarce. I mean, maybe maybe there'll be a, a, a Labour government soon that might that might change, but. I do think that we're, as a generation, we're very much defined, as any generation is, by our economic circumstances. And that's sort of, and that along with the internet has kind of changed the mode of production. It meant that people, uh, people are able to create sort of huge amounts of work in proportion to the huge amounts of time they may or may not have. Um, Which is not much when you're working for free on an <laughs> unpaid internship and then... Yeah. Working a real job and then doing your art career. Well, let's hope uh, not too many of our listeners are doing unpaid intentions. Um, <laughs> That's another topic. But yeah, how do you um, how how do you think this stuff interfaces with criticism, given the kind of ability for people to comment quickly and easily on work that is presented in our online spaces on our feeds. Um, criticism is obviously immediate now. Um, I feel like I've become a lot less critical the more I've engaged with the internet. Mm-hmm. Like it's, 
it kind of reduced my art criticism, even when I'm in a real life gallery space, mm-hmm. to I like it and I don't like it. Um, yeah, like in the past, I, I would I would always be really wanting to find out what the work was about and what it means. And now I'm just like, do I like it? Do I not like it? like a serious <laughs> deep voice yeah. and you sort of abandon this, this yeah. somehow. Yeah. Why do you think that's happened and how do you feel about it? I don't know if it's bec- if it's genuinely because I spent more time online, so I have been reduced to an Instagram kind of mentality of... Where's that image? Yes Where's and that? no. Yeah. Is, is, can I get that, access that now? Or if it's that I've just become, spent a bit more time in the art world and I, I know what I do and don't like now. I had an interesting conversation, um, for, for listeners who don't know, I'm part of School of the Damned, which is an alternative um, uh, art school run by and for its, uh, its students. So there's no real sort of authority figures. We're all, we're all organizing together. And, and so and it comes to an end after 12 months. And so in February, we'll have to select a new year and we have to, we'll, we'll be in charge of the open call and we'll be in charge of the selection process and we'll be in charge of finalising and, and handing over. And uh, I had the sort of perhaps not bright idea that uh, in order to sort of ensure impartiality uh, in terms of who we select, that we kind of ask for three images from every artist and somehow shuffle the deck ask for them the, the file names to have nothing on them, just a number or something. Uh, and then just have a sort of Tinder style process where you just throw the images off on a PowerPoint. That's being done already with the um, Not- Nottingham Castle. Every year they have an open call um, and then they do a big exhibition. Nottingham of, Castle? Yeah, because um, there's an art gallery there. Um, it's called the Castle Open. And oh. basically their premise is that you have to send um, three... T- like up to four images mm-hmm. of your work, no artist bio, mm-hmm. no CV, no link to website, it's just the four images and they just grade it on that. Yeah, they're, they're doing the Tinder thing already. And they're literally there swiping. <laughs> um, I mean, I thought, I thought like, because there's so, I think, partly I think it's a great way of selecting because it sort of removes all of that sort of, inter- there's always things that will prejudice your opinion if you, uh, if even there's sort of someone's, if the name rings more of a bell or if they've sort of been to a particular institution or you sort of think there's some cultural capital attached to them that might help, you know, it, even though with something like School of the Damned, you obviously have to think about um, how sort of, what kind of networks they're going to bring to the project and what kind of skills they're going to bring to the project. Um, You do want with the artwork to be sort of have a kind of, have that sort of blind reading process, which for poetry, I think poetry reading is most, most or the more respectable poetry open calls they have a, some sort of process where you don't know the name of the person until, you've, until they've been selected. Um, obviously there will always be things where, pe- where people are recognisable and if someone's famous and they do performance that involves themselves then that, that will become quite clear But uh, from the image they send. But yeah, broadly, that's a sort of example of it, of it dem- democratising it in a way but also perhaps the, privilege, the, perhaps the prejudices are not necessarily being removed, but more subtle ones are being reinforced. Mm. Um, yeah, because then it becomes, it could become very stylized very quickly. Mm. Um, I was having a conversation with someone recently um, who was an artist who was saying that they, 
uh, we were going around the degree show and they were saying that um, they're talking about trends. We were having a sort of general conversation about tr trends in degree. Sometimes you go to like several degree shows and there's like a lot of people using embroidery or a lot of people using like foil or like there's sort of a thing that's yeah. being done a lot. And my kind of gut reaction to this is like, oh, I don't want to be the person who's doing the thing that everyone else is doing. But then they were saying to me that they felt that, you know, they go on Instagram, they follow all the galleries and the artists and they sort of see the trends. And then the trend is the sort of style, the kind of different kinds of font, different kinds of aesthetic, help them to, uh, help them to know how they want to express um, their particular idea. So they will, they will, the aesthetic will come from whatever's trendy. Yeah. And they, they, I mean, they said this is completely unironically. I mean, and, and I sort of, it made me reconsider the sort of snark that I had about that, about trends in I a way. I it's kind of an iconography for the concept that mm. you're trying to deal with. So if you've noticed that lots of people are using, I don't know, like the stock imagery. Yeah. What were those like superimposed eye yeah. stock things? Then you know oh. that it's a certain kind of like um, ironic internet art, or then ironic. Why do you say ironic? Do you think do you, do you think like the internet art aesthetic like uh, intensifies irony? That's um, by nature. It's heavily used in a lot of internet art. Um, But I think that's just because of meme culture. Which is ironic. Yeah, so we, we're used to using the language of irony and humour to kind of softly talk about an idea, a big idea that we actually want to discuss. Mm -hmm. But then using a bit of throwaway humour means that you can kind of fluff around the edge of the subject. It's something I do myself, like I have lots of um, lofty concepts that I want to talk about and then maybe don't have the confidence to directly talk about it. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I just don't want to directly talk about it. But then I'll use a bit of humour and a bit of irony and throw in the odd comic sans or stock imagery. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're kind of not taking a position. You're taking both positions. But why do you not want to take a position? I mean, surely if it was like fascism or something, you'd be very clear about your position. Oh yeah, but I don't make work for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the posi like humour is. Um, I mean, humour doesn't have to be ironic. Humour yeah, can I be know. extremely direct, extremely clear. Well, humour's humour's either a power tool, mm -hmm. or it's there to cushion a blow. I mean, I prefer it as a power tool. Yeah. Do you prefer it to cushion a blow? Um. I think ideally I'd, I'd prefer it as a power tool, but realistically speaking, how sometimes I use it and how a lot of internet artists use it, I think it is to cushion a blow. Like, to pussyfoot around a subject. But, um, what, what motivation would someone have to pussyfoot around a subject? I guess it's the millennial ambivalence to everything. Um, what is the millennial ambivalence? <laughs> like being so hyper aware of all the problems in the world. Mm -hmm. um, because we are so connected and we do communicate so much and we discuss things so much, but then you're so aware. Is it a desensitization? Yeah, a desensitization. And just like, no, I think it's like a, 
I think it's the reverse. I think it's being hyper aware, too aware, so that you just become overwhelmed with it and don't really know what to do with any of the information that you've got. Like, I remember there was a, I don't know where this quote comes from, it was somewhere on Radio 4, but there was um, someone talking about the post-truth idea, saying that the problem isn't that we've lost truth, the problem now is that we've got too many truths. So it just leaves us feeling quite uncertain. I think that sort of ties in with, I mean, there's diff- I mean, as an artist, I see truth in various different forms. But I think, like, what the Trump uh, and Brexit... Uh, oh, no, we've gotten to this. <laughs> oh, you have to. I mean, it was 2017. Was, there's a little bit of uh, looking back to be done. Um, but I think the, I think the Trump-Brexit t- territory, there's a lot of people who were very uh, libidinally invested in the idea that if we just kind of tell people the facts, if we just tell people the, the, the correct stats then they, you know, they won't be racist and they won't kind of uh, make sort of economically imprudent decisions. Uh, and what Trump and Brexit proved, and, and I really I hope that, that this is beginning to get through to the people who are sort of very resistant, um, sort of people on the political centre generally, uh, is that actually if you have a very compelling narrative that you can, um, that you can deliver, uh, then you have, um, I mean, you can you can collect together all those truths, all those you know. Just tell someone fifty percent of this means that, and eighty percent of it, you know, uh, that doesn't really win you an argument. Maybe on a on a on a long Facebook thread amongst lots of liberals, maybe maybe it sounds compelling. But generally speaking, for most people, the voting public, uh, you know, you need something emotional. You need something narrative to sort of to give you a wider, sort of more general, romantic sense of truth, yeah. a more artistic, creative sense of a more affective sense of truth. Um, I think artists, uh, artists right now need to sort of understand their relationship to propaganda again in a different way because I think I think a lot of the sort of responses to Brexit from artists were sort of like. Oh God! Why are people wrong? (laughs) Yeah, which is the wrong rhetoric. You can't tell people that they're wrong and expect them to yeah and follow you. But even if you're not saying it's those people, even if saying it's a delusion for themselves, you know. I mean, I really, I I don't want to send for for Wolfgang Tillman, (laughs) but there's a sort of like when I see his Instagram post where he's like, "Oh God, Brexit's so bad." It's like you don't get it. Like there's like, and and as an artist, I should be saying this instead of saying this is so bad. You should be saying this is so good, like not Brexit, but you should be talking about what, yeah. Well, there's a sort of, I mean, I think like, you know that film by, I haven't seen it, but that film by Al Gore, The Inconvenient Truth. And he's, I haven't seen it. Let's have a conversation about the film. Let's both have a conversation. (laughs) I'm just going to talk about the title because he's got a new (laughs) film out called An Inconvenient Sequel, I believe. And I hate the title because it's like, I obviously, climate change is hugely important. Um, but you're not going to win anyone round to that position fundamentally by telling them that it's inconvenient. And it's this kind of really annoying sort of position of like, well, this is, this is the truth. And, 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 you know, one of these days we're going to have to sort of wake up to the fact that it's true and you may not, you may not like it, but you know, (laughs) climate change is real. And it's like, well, of course we don't like, we don't like climate change being real if climate change being real means that we have to do less of the things we like. But if you can provide a narrative to people that says, well, we can diversify our economy, we can provide different kinds of jobs, we can provide cleaner air, we can kickstart things, we can, um, 
you know, make the planet a sort of nicer place. We can, you know, alleviate the the crisis of, of, of not enough people being able to travel over here and, and, and seek refuge from from climate crises and, and other political crises. Um, climate is political, obviously. Um, you know, if, if um, you, you have to be able to provide some sort of narrative that's positive yeah. um, if you're going to get people on board. Uh, so that, I mean, that's the sort of the post, the, that's my answer to the post-truth question, is that you need to provide a new, a, like a truth that's really... Um, Still bringing people down. Yeah, like, you know, um, it's very easy when you're, like, I think quite famous to sort of, um, to be pessimistic. But that, that goes back to sort of, yeah, conversation about macho pessimism, which have happened. Mm. Um, Should we talk a little bit, talking about pessimism, should mm-hmm. we talk a little bit about um boundaries of what we do and don't share online yes um do you think that the boundaries <coughs> have started to change or i mean i think there was a sort of note a note in my in my notes for this discussion which was um emotion recollected right now which is like a a, a kind of riff on wordsworth's poetry being like a emotional emotion recollected in tranquility and this kind of grand artistic idea that um that you know you you have this you have this profound feeling and then you kind of you have the feeling quietly and then you then you then you go for a long walk and then you write a poem about something about some about some trees and you know then you've then you manage to sort of talk about your heartbreak um but there are also like some people who i'm going to take less of the piss out of such as james baldwin who i absolutely love who talks about you know writing things cold you know letting things cool down i think is a sort of a, a, a theme there um, the internet, I think, it's very interesting being an adolescent when the internet began because I witnessed other people kind of, you know, uh, recollecting their emotions absolutely in the immediate. And a lot of the work I make about emotional labour is kind of about the way that technology allows us to very much exist in the emotion we're in at the moment. A lot of these new therapy apps that are about having your therapist whenever you need them means that people don't draw as many boundaries in terms of what they share, but also just publicly sharing stuff. I mean, I think the difference, um, like on MySpace and stuff, we used to just share everything in a bulletin and it'd be very raw emotion. And we'd kind of message it to everybody. Um, I think the difference now is we're, sh- we're still sharing quite a lot publicly, but we've started to realize the downfalls of sharing too much publicly, how you can become a laughing stock, or um, just that it's not really appropriate, mm-hmm. or that you should be a bit more clever about it, a bit more sly and subtle about it. So, but I think our attitude towards private messages, we've become a bit more reliant upon them. Mm-hmm. And we also, we've still got that sense of immediacy there. We've not learned the emotional intelligence or the technological intelligence yet mm-hmm. to remove the immediacy. So yeah, I think we've just shifted where we become I still, yeah i've had a lot of experiences of messages where uh and yeah this is getting dangerously close to an artist statement because uh, <laughs> people who know my work will know that instant messages do feature somewhat um but uh yeah i think it's in it's immensely difficult to draw boundaries in a space where you're kind of able to transmit your thoughts into the keyboard quite directly within, without a sort of, without so much of the kind of bodily, the sort of mediating 
information. And oftentimes when I'm instant messaging someone, I'll sort of, I'll split my response up into various different blobs that could provide a new rhythm that is then able to kind of... Um, yeah, because nothing compares to the terror of when you see a huge paragraph <laughs> yeah. sculpt through. A big bubble, yeah, a big <laughs> blue bubble or, or, or another colour if you've, if you've chosen it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I will often say, well, okay. <laughs> like, you have to keep re-changing your habits. Like, I know people who, re like, just move their apps around on the, on the home screen, like, every week or so, just to sort of not go straight for it. You can, like, launch their thumb straight into, into Twitter or whatever it is. Um... I think there's like a, I don't, I don't think there's anything before the internet that you can compare that to really. That seemed, that sort of level of, 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 of immediacy of, of boundaries being kind of, should I look at this person's profile? We were talking yeah. earlier about, you know. Well, like I was saying before, like I'm trying to train myself into not messaging a specific person all the time because mm -hmm. it's damaging for my health and their health. So one of those tactics is to archive the conversation yeah. so that when I open up my messages I can't see the little green bubble saying that they're online yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but then yeah it's just really interesting how we're like we're learning the problems we're learning how it's affecting our mental health and then we're trying to come up with these strategies to overcome them but, but also yeah still no what are you going to say well, I mean, like messenger and, and, and whatsapp and all these things like they weren't designed by sort of um high priests of self-care you know they weren't sort yeah of otherwise the fix the <laughs> they've I mean, seen your message they I, mean, wouldn't can, I mean well yeah but i mean or you would have an option about that i mean like it's sort of i mean what yeah, would you can remove it on whatsapp but you can you can remove it on iMessage as well but you can't sort of i mean i think you know you've got to remember with a lot of social media uh, that a lot of these spaces are basically designed by people who want you to kind of get a bit more anxious and use them. Mm. And that's kind of the difference between, addictive. yeah, like MySpace had a certain joy to it, I think, because, because, and it looks naff now, but you had like customizable options. You could kind of create works of art through, yeah. through that. And, and Facebook really is sort of, most anxiety is the main kind of theme of, of that interaction, as far as I can see. And again, on MySpace, you could, um, you could see how, correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, but you could see how many people had read your bulletins, but you couldn't see which people they were. Oh. Whereas now with Instagram, obviously, you can see how many oh, people yeah, have seen eyeballs, your stories and you yeah. can see who's seen your stories. People and how many you, times people you haven't spoken it. to for ages, yeah. just watching every single one. Yeah. Or someone that's read your message and then yeah. not replied. And then they're watching all the Instagram stories. But the, the format... Yeah, MySpace didn't have any of that. It was, <laughs> it was very naive. But yeah, well, I think I guess the, the ultimate question is like, what would these platforms look like if they were designed... By, by people who weren't trying to kind of get you to use them all the time. That wouldn't mean we wouldn't, I'm not like saying these technologies are bad, but I, like if we were allowed to design platforms for communication that allowed, that didn't create this kind of, that, that minimized anxiety. Because yeah, we've got um, an intelligence about it now, which I'm sure younger generations will be just intelligent in their, attention to how these things are affecting their behaviour. But I think the interesting thing about our generation is because we can really see the transition from offline to the really naive social medias where, like you said, we were sharing everything, mm. but there was less anxiety. You still had my, like, mostly superstars and people bidding for attention and like for likes, but <laughs> it was very flashy and very like, 
if you give me a like, I will definitely give you a like. There was less passive aggressiveness about it. Yeah. And then now we've obviously got to the state where we're hyper aware of how this is affecting us, but then we're still addicted to it. The medium is the message. Yeah. Well, the younger people can learn from our, our mistakes. I think they are learning. I think I mean, yeah. Snapchat, I think, is a huge, a huge moment in that. I mean, we had things like Ask FM and stuff, these sort of... That was like a really anxiety when you got anonymous when you were like fourteen and you had like people anonymous people saying like oh I fancy you or what I, was Ask FM was it I mean there was something that there were several things that were called like they were sort of ask anonymous uh, question yeah. websites did you not have any of these I missed that maybe it's maybe. We didn't have it in the north <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it was like a kind of, I think there are still, it's called Curious Cat now, there's a website. But there was ask.fm, I think, was the precursor. But they all have the same format. Basically, you can ask a question of someone anonymously or you can ask it public, like as, but a lot, mostly people would ask anonymously and it would be a way that cyberbullying would happen a lot because you would just anonymously, um, uh, not you, I mean, I wouldn't, but um, people, people one would. would. One, one, one would, <laughs> of an occasion. Send extremely like violent and threatening messages to um, to to people that, that that you felt like doing that to. I'm I'm surprised there isn't more sort of terrifying artwork being made about <laughs> about <Oscar laughs> FM actually because it was it wasn't it was on the news. There were people like kids having real mental health problems as a result. Do you have an, a, any kind of idea in your head about what your work will look like in oh. five or ten years time. I was asked this actually. Um, I did a, I was an assistant on a residency recently mm-hmm. and some of the artists on the residency were a little bit older and quite anti-internet. Mm-hmm. Had quite a lot of heated debates about, they were just quite questioning the valid- validity in general of it as a piece of artwork. Looking at it from quite a Marxist perspective, saying about how you're putting in a lot of time working for free and effectively working for Facebook rather than working for yourself mm-hmm. as an artist. And then we were arguing, like me and the other younger artists were arguing about how, yes, that could be the case, but it's best to work for free at this stage for Facebook than it is to work for free for a gallery because at least we're still <laughs> we're still getting our work out there. And we're, we're, we're... You're doing it for you. Yeah, we're doing it for us, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, they, they asked that question. They said, um, like, is this sustainable? Can you keep m- making work about this? And my honest answer was, well, it probably is sustainable, but I think for me, um, probably won't be... Sus- yeah, probably in 10 years' time, I won't be making work about the same kind of... Mm, I'm not saying it won't be internet, but... Maybe it will be less, less heavily involved in the internet. You think your your work will be less involved in less, internet? Less, less in internet. So um, you may be may at peak internet right now. Probably peak internet. Yeah. <laughs> no, peak internet was like two thousand and eight, but I wasn't an artist then. Mm, but um, your your engagement with really, yeah. But, I guess. So there is some sense of something settling down. Yeah. The format's becoming. Maybe it's just that I'm finding less division in my head between the internet and the real world. Mm. So I guess at first when I started making internet artwork, I was just like, oh my God, I've discovered the internet. Like, let's, <laughs> this is my new platform. 
And now it's just, it's a bit having the confidence to put things into the real world as well, mm. knowing that it can still be about that conversation. Or the conversation doesn't necessarily have to be about the internet, it's maybe... So is it a bit like the question of the aesthetic changing, but the ideas broadly being the same? Yeah. Because as, as I think it's John Berger that says that as any artist with any integrity will basically be, be, be pursuing merely one or two ideas their whole life, but it will just take these different forms yeah. as they evolve. Great. Yeah. On that note, <laughs> thank you for joining me, Emily. Uh, you can see Emily's work. What's your web address? Um, www.emilysimpsonss so Simpson no three S's I've not done this very well have I just go into my Instagram um, at Emily surname that's very that's easy easier. to remember I'm at Ralph Pritchard on Instagram um, thank you very much for listening goodbye goodbye